Welcome to Empowered Returns, a show that surfaces forward-thinking real estate advice that investors and developers need to help them invest smarter and build better. Welcome to another episode of Empowered Returns. I am P.T. Weinberg, founding partner here at Charles Gate. And uh, without my co-host, Mike DeMello today, but very pleased to welcome Brian Sheehan, principal of Capital Stack Commercial Real Estate Finance. Thanks for coming on here. So let's just kind of jump right into it, kind of talk a little bit about your background in the business and, um, you know, the path that led you now to uh, principal of your uh, current firm at Capital Stack. Sure. Yeah. So I started in uh, commercial real estate about 20 years ago. Um, I had had uh, a couple other companies before and sold uh, sold a healthcare company that I had. And while in the process of doing that, I was subleasing some space from an old friend, old high school friend who had just started another uh, boutique mortgage banking company. And uh, he invited me to, to share space at the time. And over the course of six to 12 months, while I completed the sale of that healthcare company, he and I sort of got, you know, rekindled our friendship and, and, uh, had a chance to see how one another worked on a daily basis. And, and by the end of that year period, uh, he invited me to partner with him, which I, I capitalized on. And, and then we were partners for about 16, 17 years, which was a great partnership. And uh, so it was really, that, that was my entree into commercial real estate. Um, and then just kind of learned, uh, you know, on the fly. Cool. All right. So um, let's just kind of dial it back one level here and just, you know, obviously we're a design development um, focused podcast and, you know, financing and, and how to structure deals is a, is a big piece of what our audience um, wants to learn about. So can you just kind of briefly explain like the concept of, of a capital stack and then I guess typically sort of what you're seeing in the, in the multifamily space and what size deals, how that varies, um, you know, on a smaller one compared to a larger one and, and kind of uh, just give us a little overview on, on, on kind of what you do day in, day out. Sure. Sure. So when when somebody's talking about a capital stack, what they're referring to the, are the layers of, of uh, capital. Sorry to use the same term to define itself, but the layers of capital that go into a transaction. So it's basically all of your sources um, to be used to finance a project. So there's going to be uh, typically there's debt, there's equity, there may be mezzanine debt or pref equity. Uh, you may have tax credit um uh, equity in there or tax credit bridge debt. And all of those layers together will comprise your full what's called capital stack. And and that's how uh, a project comes together or whether it's you know a, a ground up project an acquisition or, or even in today's world, we're seeing more frequently seeing structured uh, refis where, where when I say structured, I mean that it's not just a traditional first mortgage lender that comprises all of that of that stack on the debt side, but rather we're having to layer in, you know, MES or PREF in addition to that that first mortgage in order to avoid a, a cash in refi from a from an owner from a sponsor, which is uh, a new term that really has just popped up in the past year. So yeah, that does not have a great ring to it, no, it for our audience. Like most people prefer the cash out refi, right? Um, so I guess that's a good segue. Like, so what the heck's going on in the capital markets right now? How have things changed over the past? 12 to 18 months as far as what you're seeing, how you're able to put or not put deals together and, and just kind of what the climate is, you know, again, in, in what's been a pretty rapidly evolving uh, space here in the past year. 
Yeah, it, it, I mean, in the 20 years I've been doing this, uh, you know, I've never seen anything like this. I, I think really, um, if somebody's being honest about experience in a in a, a rate a rising interest rate environment like we've seen over the past year, you you really have to go back to the 70s. Um, and obviously there aren't there, there aren't too many professionals that are still active in the marketplace today who, who were professionals at that time. So, uh, you know, it's been almost 50 years since we've seen this and, um, uh, what's happened is, uh, what's happening is there, there's a, a, a very real credit tightening, um, across all, uh, all of the markets. So whether you're talking about the different asset classes and you, you specifically mentioned multifamily, and I know that that's probably, where most of your listeners, viewers are, are going to um, uh, be you know, more keenly. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, but, you know, so in the multifamily space, we're seeing that, that lenders, like, for example, Bank of America last week announced that they are pulling out of all commercial real estate lending for the foreseeable future. That is a huge, obviously, you know, behemoth. Um, and when they make an announcement like that, that, that sends shockwaves throughout the industry. Others then panic and and kind of hide in corners, right? So so lenders in general, bank lenders, <clears throat> excuse me, are pulling back. Um, so B of A is out. Um, obviously, we, we've seen the fall of three banks uh, in the last six weeks now, right? So it started with uh, SVB, um, Signature Bank, and now First Republic. Um, and you know, I think that the the concern, a very real concern, is that others will follow. Um, rates have risen so fast. That that banks uh, are are upside down in, in what their liquidity requirements are uh, relative to their their um, assets, and you know so they banks lend. That's what they do. They 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 go long on treasuries. That's what they do. So banks were were long on treasuries for years, um, and then all of a sudden rates spiked, and those treasuries are worth a heck of a lot less. They can't you know they can't liquidate those at this point, right? So so if banks had sort of a a capital call, if you will, on themselves, then they're in a world of hurt because their, their balance sheets are just not where they need to be relative to their, their liabilities and to their, and to their assets. Um, so then on the lending side, um, I think that, you know, the other thing that's happened historically is that banks would trade their mortgages, right? So right. Lending, right. You could always dump off a hundred million dollars worth of commercial real estate mortgages, you know, for apartment buildings, let's say. Um, and, and that was a pretty liquid market. There were plenty of buyers out there. Banks would banks like regional banks here in new England, small banks were all different sizes would trade amongst the, amongst each other, um, fairly freely. Um, and there was always a market for that. Uh, but now if you're sitting on a, a 10 year, um, fixed rate at three and a half percent, uh, you know, $20 million apartment loan that you got into as, as a bank two years ago. Uh, but today, that same that same loan would be six and a quarter percent. Then your three and a half percent loan is not worth its its face value, right? It's not it's not it's no longer worth the twenty million that you're owed, um, right? And, and so that that's made those mortgages themselves very liquid, uh, and that's posing a huge problem for banks. So so they're they're being stressed by the by their uh, regulators. They're being told that they need to increase liquidity. Um, they don't have the ability to sell off their existing mortgages. Um, we had the PPP money run through the banks where they were awash with capital for a long time, had huge deposits. All that has now made its way through the system. So those deposits are gone. But those were in place in the in the last couple of years leading up to a year ago that the PPP money was in place in deposit accounts to all these banks, which bolstered their ability to lend yet further. Right. 
So now they've, they're kind of out over their skis in that regard as well. Um, and then lastly, the, the other issue that they have is that, that treasuries are reasonably priced from, from an investment perspective. You can <laughs> yeah. get 5% on your money. So right. why would I tie up my money? Why would I put it in a deposit account at a bank that might want to pay me 3%? And there's a little bit of a, of a competitive battle going on there right now as to you know who's going to offer what for, for money markets. And the banks seem to open up these narrow windows. They clearly are having you know very targeted raises where they'll say, okay, um, uh, you know, bring new money into us and we'll give you a 5% money market for, you know, guaranteed for a year or something like that. But, but that lasts for like six days and then the right. market closes and then they're back to 3%. Well, why would I even mess with that? If I can just take my money and throw it in a treasury, a three month treasury, if I know I don't need it for the next three months, it's not exactly a long commitment. So I pull that money out of the bank, I throw it into a treasury and now the bank has just lost yet more liquidity. Yeah. Um, so so all that's coming together at the same time and, and, crippling a lot of these banks. I mean, that's, that's. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing you're hearing a lot about, right. Is like how real is, you know, the potential, uh, I hate to, I don't want to over-dramatize, but Hey, we're on a podcast. So we'll, we'll over-dramatize like the potential Armageddon of all of this massive commercial real estate debt that's coming due on, you know, office towers, right. That have, you know, lost significant value, right? That's just one asset class that everyone's sort of hyper-focused on because, you know, historically those are some big, you know, big, big money assets with a lot of debt out there. And now all of a sudden you've got, you know, these loans coming up and, you know, a lot of these assets have dropped significantly in value and they're generating a lot less cash flow. Where is this going, you know, towards, you know, the second half of this year and, and into next and, how real a problem and, and what level of trickle down is that going to have in your opinion on the rest of the real estate market? Well, it, it's, I think we are in for a lot of pain um, over the next 12 to 18 months. I think that, and I think you're spot on. I mean, office, gosh, I, I would, I would be very distressed if I were long on office. Uh, that is a, that is a very tough asset class right now. Um, I just heard yesterday about a, a deal falling apart on a, on a very high net worth investor who had a, a partner uh, to come into a deal that was going to be a single tenant office deal. And the tenant back was, was backing off. And then the, the um, equity partner pulled out entirely the whole deal cratered. Um, and, and that was for single, single tenant. I mean, if I were going to be in office right now, the, the only place I'd be comfortable would be single tenant. As long as I had a good credit tenant on the other side. Of right, it. right. 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 Uh, right. You know, they, yeah. Obviously we're still seeing as, as a sequela of COVID that, that um, work from home is still is now a very very much a part of the mix. It, it may not be sort of the permanent norm, but I, but I think it's permanently a part of of the overall work life balance that people are looking for. And, and I think we're going to continue to see um, more people working from home, not necessarily full time, but but for part time. You know, more. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a hundred percent. I've said that for you know, the better part of the past year and a half is, you know, the, the work from home thing will survive COVID on, on some level, right. To your point, it might be hybrid versus fully remote. And, you know, obviously some companies are saying they want everyone in office all the time and it varies from industry to industry and company to company. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of companies saw that they can still operate and cut overhead significantly by having people remote. And, um, you know, that sort of, is obviously a microcosm of what's happening on a, on a macro level with the office market. But um, I guess, 
along those lines, like what asset classes right now are, you know, easier or harder for you to get deals done on and just kind of walk our audience through, like if I'm a, a multifamily developer and I'm looking to finance, you know, a 30 unit apartment deal or a 300 unit apartment deal or a 30 unit condo deal, if that's even possible right now, right? Like what, what do those kind of anecdotes look like right now and, and where are you bringing those uh, to the market? And, and, you know, what, what sort of difference in LTVs and LTCs are there now on these types of projects than there was before? And, and how is that impacting, you know, what you're able to, to find for your, your clients? Yeah. So I'm going to answer that question. And then I'm going to tell you that if you ask me the same question tomorrow, I might have a different answer. I mean, that's how fast, <laughs> that's how fast the that's market is. That's the best out you can have, though. Yeah. <laughs> that's how fast the market is moving. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, so every every February, there's the Mortgage Bankers Conference out in San Diego, and uh, I'm part of a national group of boutique mortgage banking shops um, called CRECA, which is Commercial Real Estate Capital Advisors. There are 10 of us. We do about a billion and a half a year in total transaction volume in the CRE space. And um, we we always gather together at there, uh, out there. We get a suite or a tent or whatever, and, and we'll host. I think this year we host about 45 meetings. Uh, in the tent, um, 45 different uh, lenders, capital sources of various shapes, sizes, types, et cetera. And at that time, the, the, the sort of prevailing consensus coming out of that was that that the first half of the year was going to be a little thin on volume, but the second half of the year was going to be very robust. And lenders, one of the nice things about the, the timing of that conference, which is not coincidental, is that lenders use that to announce what their goals are for the year. Um, in terms of lending volume, and and a, a, a measure that that we and Creca that I certainly use is you know comparing what lenders say from one February to the next. Um, obviously, you know last year as as rates spiked, um, lending dropped off and the and, and transaction volume dropped off sharply in the second half of the year. Um, right. So a lot of lenders, <clears throat> there were plenty of lenders who still made their goals, and that was because things were so robust in the first half of the year. And anybody that was concerned or had a looming refi need was trying to get things done as quickly as possible if they were well advised, seeing that rates were starting to tick up. Um, so the, the first half of the year was heavily weighted. Uh, and then the second half, and one of the more, more prolific debt funds that, that I've done business with, it's a debt fund out of the Midwest that that um, didn't do, they, they made their bogey for the year. They hit their goal for the year and they did not close a single loan after May 31st. So. Wow. Um, you know, and that was kind of what the market was like. What was interesting was in February of this year, I thought for sure we were then going to see uh, lenders coming in and saying, hey, our goal was a billion last year. Our goal was three billion last year, but this year it's going to be 750 million or it's two billion. Right. I thought we'd see reductions in year over year goals to accommodate for the fact that we all seem to intuitively understand that the first half of the year was going to be a little bit thin on volume again. Um, and instead, what we saw was was across the board lenders held. Uh, to the same goals as what they have for 2022. And I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, one of the things I came out of there saying and, and, and telling my clients was, if we have if we have financing needs in the second half of this year, don't assume that it's going to be a standard, you know, 45 to 60 days, because if all this volume is happening from, you know, the basically September through December, we're not going to be able to get third parties in order to produce reports in the same sort of three to four week turnaround time. That's going to get stretched out to six, seven weeks and that means we're going to have our, our process extended out to you know maybe more like 75 to 90 days. Um, but all of that said, here we are now just a you know a couple of months later, three months later, 
and and I'm seeing you know the lenders pulling back. So you know banks putting pencils down and just saying we're not open for business on lending. I'm seeing um, whole commercial real estate groups at some banks being told don't go out and find us more loans. Go out and find us more deposits, uh, which is an interesting thing to to see that happen. And, and you know friends of mine that are lenders at these different banks are saying that's not what I do. I don't even you know I don't even know where to start on that other than you know just calling the Rolodex of existing borrowers they have and looking to try to raise additional deposits that way. Um, yeah. But that's a major, major shift in two and a half, three months. Um, yeah. And so, so the picture for the second half of this year, I think, has gotten pretty, pretty grim, um, which is hard. That's not my uh, my nature to say. I'm always a glass half full guy. And as a, you know, you, you can relate as a broker, as an intermediary. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, look, right? I, I think. Awesome. I think I, I remember lots of conversations over the fall and winter where everyone was kind of like, oh, you know, the first half of the year is going to be a little rough. But like, you know, as we get into Q3 and Q4, at least on the resi side, you know, rates are going to normalize and, you know, we're kind of going to be, you know, back in the around 5% on the, on the resi interest rates and, you know, it'll all be well and good. And, you know, a lot of what you're seeing that that's kind of in the, you know, more commercial space that will obviously have impact on, on residential um, transactions and, and just the, the, the kind of landscape is that, you know, yeah, I, I think the general consensus is the second half of the year might not be as, um, as much of a kind of an air quotes recovery as kind of people had hoped. Right. Is that, do you feel like that's fairly accurate? Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate. I, I don't, I yeah. don't think we're going to see a recovery in the second half of this year at this point. I mean, so it's, it's, you know, we're coming up on one thirty right now. The Fed is going to, is going to make its announcement uh, in a half hour for, for this meeting. Expectations are a 25 bit um, increase. Um, and, you know, and as always is, you know, the case is, is going to be, it's, it's going to be more about what Powell has to say. Uh, what's yeah. Than, than what they actually do now. If if they don't increase, then that's that's going to be um, that'll be taken as a you know a very positive move. I think banks will breathe yeah. relief there, yeah. but um, but it's going to well, be interesting, you know. Yeah. And, and then and are they going to say okay? But now we're done, right? I think right, that's, that's right, good. right. Well, I think that's kind of like along the lines of what I was just saying. I think if we were having this conversation last fall, like oh well, you know, maybe we'll see another. You know, they did the December one, and oh, maybe we'll see one or two early next year. But like. I don't think anybody thought you'd be, you know, on pins and needles for the Fed coming out in May and more increases would still be in the conversation. Right. I mean, right. I think everyone thought this would have subsided 90 days ago, 60 days ago, whatever. Um, and so, look, I mean, that that's kind of, a, I guess, new reality. Right. We are where we are. Right. I think we're very lucky to be doing what we do where we do it. Right. And, and that's trite. But, you know, for our local audience. I mean, look, Boston's very insulated. We've still got a very strong market in many respects and, and far stronger than, than most other locales. Um, but just again, given the current challenges that we're talking about, how are you differentiating? Like, what are you doing for your clients that, you know, other people that do what you do may not be doing? And how are you able to sort of navigate through what are kind of rocky waters to get people's you know, goals accomplished here and continue to get some deal flow and, and enable, you know, your clients to, to secure their, their capital to be able to execute on their projects. Yeah. Thanks. So, so I think a few things, one, 
One is that that I've always been a very sort of high touch client service person. So you know, I, I am some of my competitors will will kind of line you know sign up a, an engagement, bring in the information, hand it off to a twenty something analyst, and and then get a bunch of quotes, deliver them, say okay, pick one, and I'll see you at the closing. Right. Um, that that's never been how I've operated. Whether it was for the first sixteen years in this business with my former business partner, or the last four years. Uh, with with my platform at, at Capital Stack CRE Finance, um, I am I'm constantly in the mix, advising my clients along the way. Um, so so I take the same approach um, when we're outside of that that transaction environment for the clients as well. So right now it's really about communication. So it's talking to my clients in advance, knowing their portfolios, knowing what they have coming up, and having conversations about what I think things are going to look like, for example, I, I've got one client who's got a maturity in October, right? So, so I, I have been talking to him for several months and, and frankly, coming out of the meeting, um, the MBA back in February, one of the first calls I made when, when getting back uh, to Boston was, was to him to say, Hey, we need to start this process now, right? This is, we, we may catch a break later on, on rates, but we need to get the process going now. Let's get everything lined up now. And, and just realizing and helping clients to understand the reality that, that if they are in bridge loans or if they are in <clears throat> maturing fully leveraged loans that maybe they did five years ago, seven years ago, that were done at say 75% or even 80% LTV, that the reality is that, that with interest rates having doubled, that the cash flow that they're going to have in hand today is unlikely to cover a full refi without, without cash in. And as you, as we said to start this off, that's an ugly word. No, nobody wants to do a cash in refi. So, so the so then the next option is to get creative, and and that's something that I've done really well for my career. I enjoy, I very much enjoy that part of this business. Uh, you know, it's kind of the puzzle solving and 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 thinking creatively with the clients to help them um, to a you know address what the issues are, what the reality is on in in the world. Yeah what the issues are that they may have, and then coming up with a creative solution to, to bring about a capital stack that solves for a cash neutral refi or um, uh, acquisition. Well, obviously not acquisition, but refi in, in most cases. So, so that, that's yeah. why, and, and that's what I've, you know, I've got one that Knockwood is supposed to close this afternoon. That's, that's a structured refi and same situation that that's, you know, we were able to bring in um, a MES lender to bring in a, a first mortgage lender that was comfortable with MES bring in the MES uh, to complete um, the MES is about 20% of the stack. Um, and the, the first mortgage is at, you know, sort of max proceeds, which two years ago, um, this, you know, it, we'll put it this way. If we had rates from even just one year ago, this, this deal would be, or this, this post loan closing, this asset would be cash flowing at about a one six debt service coverage ratio on its first mortgage, which would mean it would have plenty of room for that other 20%. Instead, we're going to close. He's got to, he's got to hit some rent bumps to get to a one up after, after right. closing. So, I mean, that's the impact of, of the rates. I mean, and rates are still at historically. I, well, that's the thing, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just that we got, yeah. we got used to an environment of three and a half percent. And that's nobody's fault. It's just, it, it's just a fact, right? And values adjusted around that. We, we haven't yet seen values adjust. Um, you know, thankful for that. We're still seeing, you know, very positive appraisals on multifam in this area. Um, yeah. But at a certain point, it, if these rates stick around much longer, 
we're going to see some value adjustments as well. You just have to, you know, you, you have to you yeah. can't justify a 4% cap rate on an asset in a six and a half percent borrowing market, right? That just, that those two don't compute. Yeah. So, you know, I like what you said about just really kind of the puzzle solving and, and just, again, just kind of the resourcefulness of getting some deals done. What are kind of one or two cool examples of, of things you've encountered in your career where you're kind of really proud that you were able to, to, you know, keep a deal together or put a deal together and, you know, just, you know, some outside the box type stuff that people might not know even can happen. Um, <laughs> a couple of examples like that would be fun to hear about. Sure, sure. Uh, well, if if today's uh, if today's close, yeah. you know, if you have me back on next week, I'll tell you about today's. Um, so, uh, I you know, one that was that was pretty interesting and, and probably the most structured um, uh, financing I've ever been a part of was a um, a multifamily asset in Providence back a few years ago now, um, where my client had had some major cost overruns. This was pre-COVID, but major cost overruns during construction that had nothing to do with him. It was completely unforeseen. It was this rant. I'd never heard of this before, but, but the steel uh, for this tower, the steel was delivered and it was not cut to spec. So the, the units of, of steel were each about three inches, I think it was, short of what, what specs were. Um, they got five or six stories in the air and there was an adjacent building that they should have been essentially level with. And they realized at that point, wait a minute, why are, why are we, you know, obviously, you know, visually a good foot or I think, it's maybe, I think it was like 18 inches below the adjacent building, which was, which was kind of part of this development, but there was, there was the existing building there. So when things weren't lining up six stories in the air, they said, well, what's happened? And then, and then they measured and realized what had happened. So, so the project was shut down. They had a Jerry rig engineer in the field and get signed off on this engineering, a solution for that. So they could keep going without tearing the steel down. Cause if they had, they were starting over. Um, and that would have just delayed obviously tremendous delay on, on the, the time, the ability to deliver. And um, yeah, maybe some cost too. Yeah, right. And he had had commitment <laughs> on the on the delivery date, so it was it was a disaster for my poor client. And again, not of his own doing. He did it had nothing to do with anything he did or didn't do right. It was just you know horrible, horrible misfortune. So um, end of the day, uh, he was within a few months of finishing, um, and he had a five million dollar overrun. But the and I I had I met him actually on this project. So I was introduced to him by his attorney at that time, um, with whom I shared a lot of mutual clients and, and have always enjoyed a, a great working relationship. And anyway, so it was that that attorney's client. He had recommended me. So look, you know, you're in a real jam here. He didn't have the ability to write the five million dollar check to to right size the the project. Um, and and so the attorneys look, you know, Brian's pretty pretty good at, at creative solutions. Why don't we bring Brian in and see if he can, um, if he can solve this, this problem. So um, at the time that the, the stack was a bank first more construction loan, um, a, there was some kind of a, of a loan slash grant from the city. There was a tax credit and a tax credit bridge loan. So the, the position that was available in the stack was, was at that time a fourth mortgage. The, the second and third mortgages were going to go away once once the project was completed. And I think, you know, the, the tax credits had to had to fully vest, but but those were going to eventually go away. But in the meantime, the position that we could offer to the marketplace was a fourth mortgage, which I, I had never even heard of a fourth mortgage before that. It's like, who, you know, who does right. that? 
And oh, by the way, it's in a stalled out. Well, not at that point. It, it was it had remobilized, but it was a yet to be completed construction project, which you know, no lenders or, or investors want to come into somebody else's headache, right? Nobody wants to right, of course, yeah, kind of restructuring of the capital stack in a in a construction project. Um, but we were able to find, you know, it actually was it was somebody that I knew through my Creca network, where we had, we had uh, the year before, I think. We had had a, uh, a group outing where we invited about 20 um, lenders and investors to come come join all the crack offices and do some deep sea fishing. And it was it was one of the one of the groups that had come on come along for that trip that I just had really hit it off with. And and he was up for the ride. And cool. ultimately, we got it done. Um, you know, a few years later, he was he was taken out of the of his position. Everybody was happy. So that was that was a tricky one that, that you know, I. I I hope I don't see another one that structured again. <laughs> that right, crazy. right. We got it done. That wouldn't get done today. That I can promise you, that would not get done in today's market. Um, you know, we were fortunate. He had the misfortune of the of the steel issue, but but he had the good fortune of it being probably somewhere around 2017, 2018, something like that, where everything was just go, go, go. And there was- Right, no right, right. So- Yeah. So <clears throat> that's cool. That's a, that sounds like a pretty interesting one. Um so as we kind of get towards the end here and wind down, like what um, I'm just trying to, you know, as far as our audience goes, right? Like some real sort of micro specific examples, just so people can sort of wrap their head around some of the changes in, 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 the, in the climate out there. If I came to you and wanted to build, you know, a 50 unit development right now, um, how much more equity do I need than I would have needed, um, you know, year, year and a half ago, um, interest reserve, all, all that kind of stuff. Like wh what are you seeing out there right now? And what advice would you give, you know, especially younger developers as they still want to kind of plow through and execute projects in this type of capital markets climate on um, what to be prepared for as they look at deals? Yeah, great, great question. So, uh, you know, capital is scarce. So, um, and and leverage is down, uh, and and rates are up. So it's a it's a it's a bad combination. Um, yet we still have demand for more housing in this market, right? So it, it's going to make sense. Uh, I'm working with a client right now who who just asked me about this. Just had this exact conversation a week ago. And and he's he has an option on his land. And, and what I said was, you know, the reality is that land is not worth as much today as it was when you when you optioned it uh, a year ago. And, you know, they're they're through their approvals. But but that's just the reality. And I said, I, you know, I think you're going to have to work with your land seller to to figure out a solution. Now, may, maybe that land seller can can participate in some way. Maybe they don't have to discount the price. Maybe, you know, there's some creative solution there that everybody can come out whole, but, but it's got to come down to change in land until and in if uh, costs are coming down. And right now we're, 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 we still haven't really seen a reduction in construction costs. So, um, so my advice to people would be, you've got to go in with, with more capital than you planned um, where uh, a year, year and a half ago, we might have been able to to get a project done at seventy five, even eighty percent of cost, depending on what that appraisal looked like on, on yep. stabilization. Um, that that's gone right now. We're looking at probably sixty, sixty five percent of cost. You'd be really, really hard pressed to get to seventy. And part of the issue is when if you look at 
um, if you look at where rents are, if you look at where costs are, and then you factor in what the cost of the capital is right now, you, there's very little value creation through ground up development. So right. we're just, we're not going to see a lot of ground up development over the next 12 months, 18 months until either rates change or costs change. Um, and one or the other has, has got to happen um, in order to, um, uh, you know, inspire more, more ground up building. I, I think we're going to see a pretty big pause on that, you know, and, the, and it's a cycle. We, we've seen this before that part of it, obviously, you know, costs will start to come down when, when right. That happens, right. There'll be, you know, as demand on materials wanes, then we're going to see those materials costs come down. And I think part of this is what, what the fed wants, right. They, they wanted to slow down the economy. They wanted, they wanted to, 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 uh, take pressure off of commodities, off of materials, off you know, off of pricing in general um, to bring down inflation. And I think that's what we're going to see, for better or worse. You know, it's not right. Not, not right. The news that you or I want, but um, but it's reality. What I would say, I think it's a great time to lean into um, um, permitting, right? So if if you have an, an opportunity to option land now. And you're, you know, and it's greater Boston. So you're probably two years away from, from having all your approvals or 18 months away from having all your approvals. I think that's, I think it's a great time for that. Um, yeah. I think it, th those who are just getting their approvals, have approvals in hand and were thinking they were going to break ground this summer, for example, that that's a tough spot. Um, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. It's not, it's not that it can't be done. It can be, I, I can still finance it. I am still financing that for folks. I mean, for some people it's, Hey, we're builders, we're developers. This is what we do. We're, we're going to do it in good times. We're going to do it in bad times. We're just going to keep on going. Um, and we can still make those work, but they're far less attractive. And the reality is you've got to bring more cash in. Um, the other part of it is that you, you've got to have a strong balance sheet. Lenders are uh, up and down and all across the, the, the capital market space. Um, lenders are going to be or are um, much more critical of, um, of, of sponsors, of their balance sheets. They want to see more liquidity than they were requiring. They want to see mm -hmm. greater net worth. They're going to challenge net worth a little bit more. They're going to challenge, you know, what values people are carrying on their, on their personal financial statements for their assets and, and have some, you know, there gonna be some difficult conversations around, well, you're carrying this as a, at a four cap. You, do you really think it's a four cap? Shouldn't this be a five in today's market, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, so those things are going to shift. Um, and, and that's already starting to happen. And then, and then last but not least is that it's just everything costs more that right. in, ter in terms of the, you know, the rate that you're paying. So, you know, debt, um, debt is more expensive at, at the most conservative and conventional places, you know, the, the, the banks. Um, and with that, the, the cost of capital from debt funds, private lenders, um, life co life codes too, which are the, actually they're the most conservative, but, but all of the, all of those across all of the, uh, the various, um, uh, classes uh, of available debt out there. Everything's more expensive. Um, yeah. So I, I'm seeing deals go off right now at, at 10 and 11% where clients are thrilled, where, where if I had, if I had suggested 10% to somebody a year ago, they would have shot me. Right. <laughs> so now all of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, I can't believe you got that done, Brian. That's amazing. 10%. That's a good deal. And, and I can't, I can't get my arms around that yet, but that's the reality that if you're trying to get a fully, le a full leverage construction loan. So if you want to get to 75, 80% loan to cost right now, you, yeah. you probably are paying 10, 11 percent because it's not coming from a bank. And, but even banks are probably going to be, you know, and I, I haven't had I haven't quoted too many bank construction loans recently. I've got one that just got that was just committed last week. That's a 40 percent LTC at 7 you know, yeah. percent. And it's and that's 40 percent LTC. So, right. I mean, that's 
That's crazy, right? Compared to the, the environment we've come out of the, almost for 15 years, right? The last 13 years, we've seen incredibly low rates and we've seen you know high leverage because the numbers supported it. But, and, oh, I, one more thing I'll throw out there is that, that lenders in general in the multifamily space will tend to kind of follow the agencies. So Fannie, Freddie, HUD. Yeah. Um, and Fannie has been very clear that they are going to start tightening their policies in June. Um, so if you've got, if somebody's got a, a, a looming refi on a multifam, you know, call me, call, call whatever mortgage bank you work with, call your bank, whatever it is, but, but you want to look at that now. Cause if, if you can get in with and get your file open with, with Fannie Freddie in the next four to six weeks before they change, your, your deal will actually be grandfathered in typically okay. guaranteed you know. grandfathered in as to what the parameters are today. And as their underwriting criteria um, tightens in mid to late June, which they may not, but they're indicating they're going to, then you may have a very different set of terms. Um, and and so that that's just another piece. And, and lenders follow that, right? So as as yeah. they, they look to you know banks follow the guidance of, of Fannie Freddie, uh, and part of that's just competition. They're saying, all right, well, we don't have to do any more than what they're doing, right? So so then it's okay. They're pulling back. Well, then we're going to pull back. Uh, yeah. And vice versa. So, you know, that's that's another piece of this this whole big capital puzzle. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's kind of wrap it up here. What uh, where's your business going? What do you what do you see in a year, three, five years for um, you know for capital stacks, Yari? Well, I think I think for the rest of this year, knock wood, I I think it's going to be actually a fairly robust year for me. I've got it, and it's just where my clients are and what their needs are, um, and we have a lot of a lot of refi in the pipeline, uh, some acquisitions, but a lot of refinancing uh, that just has to happen. Um, right. And, and sadly, they're going to they're going to pay a little bit more for it than what they have been, or a lot more than what they have been. Um, looking at maybe some shorter term, uh, short shorter terms for clients, uh, thinking that in you know three years out, that rates could be you know quite a bit lower than where they are right now. Um, and, and so a lot of clients are interested in that. So I, I think the next 12 months, um, it's going to be challenging. It, it's somewhat exciting and sometimes fun, but there's going to be, some, <laughs> there, there'll be a lot of, a lot of stress in there too. And I, I think in terms of volume, it'll be strong. Um, looking into next year, my, my guess would be that the first half of 2024 is going to be slim pickings. I, I think, I think transaction volume, will will be down again at that point um and uh and then probably ticking back up by the second half of that so for me i, I you know i'm i'm plus or minus whatever 150 million or something like that a year in transaction volume and and i i think for capital stack that'll continue um you know as my clients grow i grow with them as their average transaction size grows so to, so then therefore does mine um and i think that'll continue i think my clients are all going to weather the storm fine there'll be some pain um, but I, but I think they'll all maintain their portfolios and, and get through it. Okay. Yeah. All right. What's, uh, what's something people might not know about you? Oh, something people not, might not know about me. Um, uh, I'll throw out two things. Uh, so, um, uh, I actually grew up in Indiana. Uh, I was from, from, from here, but grew up in Indiana. So, so that I, might surprise a lot of people. Okay. Um, I yeah. didn't even know that. So there you go. We've known each other for 25 years. Yeah. First grade, yeah. Through eighth grade in Indiana. So that, that, that's a little known fact and, uh, uh, played, uh, played college baseball. So not everybody might know that. Division one college baseball. Uh, yes, it was. 
<laughs> I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it, you know, with the, with the <laughs> hanker, with, I mean, you know, dirty baseball guy with the handkerchief like that. I mean, <laughs> show the hanky. You got to show the hanky <laughs> off. For that. That's your signature. I like it. Um, always styling. I don't, uh, me, so. uh, <laughs> I don't carry my glove around with me. No, no. Uh, and your son's a real good baseball player. He's pretty good. He's competitive. Yep. There loves you it. go. There you go. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, really appreciate you you, you, you jumping on here. Um, guess last question is uh, what's the best book you've read of late and any recommendations for the audience? Oh, great one. So I, I just read, um, and it was, I had read, I don't think I'd ever finished it many years ago. I'd read part of it, but I just, I just reread or finally read the whole thing that the, um, uh, autobiography of Malcolm X, which was amazing. Oh, really? Okay. Amazing. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Uh, I'm reading the color of law right now, uh, which is a, a very interesting read as well. And then, um, oh gosh, what is the, um, oh, I can't, the ascent of money, the ascent of money by Niles Ferguson. Uh, who's a, he is a Harvard professor. He was, and it is a great, great book about the history of currency, uh, globally. Okay. And, but it reads like a novel. It sounds like, oh my God, shoot me. I, I can't imagine anything more boring than reading about that. It reads like a novel. It's brilliantly written and you will learn a ton. So that, that's one of my favorite books of all time. All right. Awesome. Well, there you go. Some good recommendations. Uh, so I guess we'll, uh, we'll put a bow on it there. But I uh, just, again, want to thank Brian Sheehan, uh, Principal of Capital Stack Commercial Real Estate Finance for joining us today. And we will catch you next time on another episode of Empowered Return. Thanks a lot, PT. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to another episode of Empowered Returns. If you're a forward-thinking real estate investor or developer looking for actionable advice that will help you generate market-beating returns, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. I'm Mike DeMello with Charles Gate, and I'd love to connect on LinkedIn and further the conversation for any specific questions you may have. Thank you for listening.